Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. If you follow the Middle East at all, you've probably read the works of my guest today, Mark Lynch. He is a professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University and the founder and director of the Project on Middle East Political Science, among other affiliations. Mark publishes widely and in a wide variety of mediums. He's got a high-volume Twitter feed under the handle Abu Ardvark and writes regularly for the Monkey Cage blog at the Washington Post. And he's someone I have learned from over the years tremendously. We spend about the first 20 minutes or so talking about his new book, The New Arab Wars, Anarchy and Uprising in the Middle East, which explores the Arab Spring and its fallout, but through the prism of international relations and regional politics. Mark discusses how he became interested in the Middle East through an internship early in college and the evolving nature of one of his key research subjects over his career, the relationship between media and politics in the Middle East. And of course, I would be totally remiss if we did not discuss his musings on how international relations theory can explain rivalries in hip hop. Jay-Z alone, you know, he had his trajectory, but then as he was on his decline, uh, he, he forms this alliance with Kanye West. So stick around to the end for that. As always, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com where you can check out our archives, subscribe on iTunes. We have a free app for your iPhone or Android, and you can get in touch with me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover or anything else that's on your mind. And now here is my conversation with Mark Lynch. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I, I felt like there was a really rich and really good academic literature that had developed around the Arab uprisings that did a really, really good job of looking inside each individual country. And, uh, and it could explain why this happened in Egypt, why this happened in Morocco, this happened in Tunisia. But what I thought was really missing was the sense of this being a, a genuinely region-wide course of events and where, where there was really profound interaction between different countries and a really unbelievably high level of intervention and interference by regional powers and, and global powers in what was happening. And so I, I felt like there was a real um, mismatch between the way the academic literature was approaching these as a series of independent cases and then uh, the, what I saw is the reality of this tightly integrated regional, almost a regional Cold War, regional struggle for power. And so the academic reason for writing the book then was to try and reintroduce this sense of the Arab uprising as this genuine region-wide phenomenon that uh, was all part of this common playing field. And, and that when I, once I started writing it and started thinking about it that way – 
it becomes, to me, almost impossible to miss. You can really, really see the way, for example, the, uh, the, the military coup in Egypt in 2013, ripple effects go out uh, to Tunisia, to Jordan, across the Gulf. You know, this was not just a, a Jordan, uh, an Egyptian event. It was something that was happening all over the region. Or the Syrian civil war becomes a proxy war, which drags in all of these other, con- all of these other countries, uh, revitalizes the jihadists, destabilizes the neighbors. And so I really wanted to, uh, to think about what was happening in the Middle East as this genuinely region-wide international course of events. Uh, so did the coup in Egypt, for example, fundamentally change any uh, regional alliances that were already in place uh, in, in the Middle East? Well, it's interesting that you put it that way because one of the effects, uh, I, I wouldn't say the causes, but one of the effects of the Arab uprising, of the Egyptian uprising in particular, um, was that Egypt which had long been a mainstay of the Saudi-led alliance system, uh, once it moved uh, through elections to a Muslim Brotherhood president, Mohammed al-Morsi, um, that was dr- pushing it or pulling it into the Qatari camp. And uh, for those who follow Gulf politics and Middle East politics, you know that the rivalry between Qatar and Saudi Arabia has been one of the defining features of regional politics for uh, for the last decade. And so... The rise of a Muslim Brotherhood elected president, most people look at this as something about Islamism, which it certainly was. But in regional power politics, this was taking Egypt out of the Saudi camp and pulling it into the Qatari camp. The military coup reversed that, and it brings Egypt firmly back into the Saudi camp. And uh, also the, the you know there's a now a pretty strong alliance between Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And so the Saudi-UAE uh, alliance basically underwrites the coup and the military regime which follows. And that just basically wrests Egypt back into the, uh, that camp and takes it away from Qatar. So, so that's actually one pretty, pretty um, I think, a, a, a fairly well-known example um, among folks who, who follow the, the Middle East. Um, could the rise of ISIS sort of be similarly explained as a sort of an outgrowth or a product of like regional power politics? Definitely. I mean, not the uh, not the, uh, the organization itself. I mean, that has pretty clear roots in uh, in the aftermath and the evolution and the aftermath of the uh, Iraqi uh, uh, war, you know, the war against the American occupation and the civil war which followed. And there's very clear roots there in Iraq. But um, the way that ISIS evolves is very much shaped by the way the regional powers got involved in Syria. And so basically, when you see Syria going from the early days where you have a peaceful uprising, which is met with this really brutal uh, counter uh, counterattack by Assad and his allies, um, you basically have a period of about a year where you know there's this tension between nonviolence and violence, intervention or non-intervention. Will the United States intervene? What will the United Nations do? Um, but then, by roughly early 2012, you get uh, basically with a failure of the UN to come to a resolution, you start seeing this really dramatic increase in the flow of money and guns into the armed groups in Syria, and that sets in motion this cycle of externally driven escalation and intervention. So the the funding and arming of the Syrian rebels, you know, it it strengthens them. They begin moving down towards Damascus and Hezbollah intervenes uh, and sends their forces in to reinforce Assad. 
when the rebels get stronger again, uh, the Iranians intervene. And then when the rebels get stronger again, Russia intervenes. And everyone gets dragged in. But in terms of ISIS, the really fateful thing is that the funding and the arming of the Syrian uh, insurgency was done in a really highly uncoordinated way and actually a highly competitive way. So what you saw was not uh, an external arming of a single coherent Syrian insurgency. Instead, what you got is Qatar backing its proxies and Turkey backing its proxies and Saudi Arabia backing its proxies and Jordan backing its proxies. And throughout all of that, you have this rising um, really, really powerful social mobilization, especially in the Gulf uh, around the Syrian insurgency, the Syrian uprising. And more and more of the money that's being poured in is going to the jihadist groups. It's going to the hardline Islamist groups. And, and is that principally does, from like the, the Saudi slash UAE alliance or is it from? It's coming from, from all over. All it's over. coming from the Qataris. It's coming from the UAE. It's coming from Kuwait. Actually, Kuwait emerges as a major epicenter of, uh, of these private uh, of these private flows of money. Um, and so what I'm not saying here is that this money is going directly to ISIS. It's not that these countries created ISIS. What they created was the environment within which ISIS could thrive. So you've got more and more of these insurgent groups. They're increasingly Islamist. And this is a zone in which the, uh, the emergent jihadist groups thrived. This is their environment, shattered states, uh, lots of arms and money flowing, an increasingly Islamist environment. And so ISIS emerges out of basically the splintering of the uh, the al-Nusra front, uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, which had been sent over and created uh, by the uh, former Islamic State of Iraq, the former Iraqi insurgency. Mm-hmm. And they were part of the, of the rebel alliance, the rebel coalition in various places. They split. And ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or Iraq and Hashem, is basically emerges then out of the splinter, uh, the breaking apart of one of those jihadist factions, which was part of that overall tapestry of this militarized and Islamized insurgency. And so you, you simply can't explain uh, the emergence of ISIS without the, uh, uh, this, regional, uh, this regional power politics, but you also can't reduce it to the regional power politics, right? It has local, mm-hmm. local foundations and drivers, but all of those are intensified, accelerated, and made worse by what the regional powers are doing. Does the the fact now that that sort of ISIS, you know, like the the monster that these you know Frankenstein created sort of thing um, that has emerged as sort of um, as as sort of the dominant group and and a threat to many of the, of the the regimes in the neighborhood um, create any opportunity or any space for some reconciliation uh, between say you know Saudi Arabia and, and Qatar? Is there any sort of prospect? for um, these power politics to, to sort of shift in any meaningful way now that ISIS is sort of like a common threat? Well, there's been certainly hopes for that. And that's been a, a big part of, uh, of the American strategy, I think, has been to try and use ISIS as something which can reunite this deeply fractured and uh, highly uh, competitive, internally competitive coalition. And, um, you know, so you definitely see the United States you know, they're now intervening uh, in Syria. They're now intervening in Iraq in ways that Obama certainly didn't want to do. Um, but they're doing it against ISIS, not against um, not against Assad. And um, and, so, and so what that what that's led then is 
a definite recognition on the part of governments in uh, you know in, in uh, Jordan and Saudi Arabia and so forth. A definite recognition that ISIS poses a real threat. I mean, they're perfectly aware of how much appeal uh, that ideology has to certain sectors of their populations. They're highly attuned to internal terrorism threats, and so you know, they they recognize that it's a problem. But at the same time, especially Saudi Arabia, they and and many of the the kind of the cluster of of uh, intellectuals and pundits and policy analysts around Saudi foreign policy, they very clearly see Iran as the greater threat than ISIS. And so you'll see right now in in the battle over Fallujah, which is being led by the Iraqi military with the participation of uh, quite sectarian Shiite militias. Um, you basically see this fierce repudiation of this campaign against Fallujah by people who object more to the fact that it's Shiite-led than by the fact that uh, you know they're going after ISIS. Where, where, who are these pundits? Are, these are pundits in the Middle East, not not in D.C. You're saying? Well, there's some in D.C., but really it's it's more just there's a whole discourse around this notion of what should be the strategy. Uh, in the Middle East, the broader strategy. And I think from the, from the Saudi perspective, the overarching thing should be uh, this region-wide battle against Iran. And they see Iran expanding. Their reading of the, of the international relations of the Arab Spring is that Iran has taken advantage. They've spread and consolidated their control over Iraq. They are deploying in Syria. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're advancing into Lebanon and into Yemen. And the United States, by virtue of pursuing the nuclear deal, has either uh, abdicated the fight or have, has actively chosen to side with Iran. I mean, that's the narrative that comes out of, uh, of, of this Saudi discourse. And, uh, you know, on, on the other side, you know, people look at this and they say, you know, th- it's just not right. I mean, Iran, before the Arab Spring, was in a much stronger position than it is today. You know, Hezbollah in Lebanon was much more popular and widely supported across the region. And now it's widely condemned as a sectarian actor and it's over de- overstretched and forward deployed in Syria. You know, it's much weaker than it was. Assad used to be a strong, stable, allied leader. Now he's barely holding on for his life. And Iran, it's not you know, a good thing that it has its troops deployed in Syria. That shows the weakness of its ally. And Iraq is a mess. And you know, the government is falling apart. And Yemen is a disaster. And so from that point of view, you know, the greater threat is the civil wars. It's ISIS. It's the jihadist threat and all of those things. And and my point is simply that there's this huge argument which is playing out in real time about how you should understand the major threats in the region and how you should prioritize uh, between them and then how you respond to them. And I think Fallujah is actually really nicely crystallizing a lot of those um, a lot of those internal tensions. Uh, do you see any potential for the next U.S. president, say Hillary Clinton, which you know probably it will be, um, to uh, sort of? change this dynamic or or, or 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 fundamentally change any sort of the, the 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 rivalry that you were just that you just had just described not not a huge amount and um they're gonna try there's no question that hillary or or whatever whoever wins will try i mean i i can't predict trump i mean i really don't know uh what trump would do but i think if you look at clinton you look carefully at you know how she's presenting her foreign policy i, I think that it, I mean, I, and I wrote that, I wrote this in the book, and I also wrote this in a foreign affairs piece uh, not too long ago. That what you're going to see is 
this very ostentatious effort early in the administration to uh, to to declare that America is back, that um, you know that uh, Obama was too unwilling to use force and uh, was. You know, you, you, you've heard all this before, right? You know, he, he's nice to our enemies and mean to our friends and all this. So you're going to see the next administration most likely try and rebuild those alliances and, you know, ostentatiously uh, re-embrace uh, Israel, re-embrace the Gulf and um, probably get involved in some kind of direct military intervention, bombing Syria, whatever, just to show that uh, this administration is willing to use force in ways that, um, that Obama was not. Um, and oh, sorry, but, but then but then my point though is that once they do that, and they'll get a couple of months of really positive press out of it, and regional leaders will say very nice things about them, and then nothing's going to change. And I think what and I think what you're going to end up seeing is the next administration is going to go through a learning curve where they're going to try and do these things, and then they're going to s- discover the same structural changes and, stru- and structural obstacles that Obama did. I mean, I expect the Hillary Clinton administration is going to end up just as frustrated with the Saudis as Obama is over their refusal to re to kind of restructure their foreign policy in line with uh, with the Iran deal, with the determination to intervene in Syria, with you know all the the, the Yemen war, they're going to find themselves just as frustrated as Obama is, and they're also going to find the same limitations on uh, on the ability of the U.S. to control and dictate events that Obama did. And so they're going to find, and I guess every administration has to relearn this lesson, that the United States is just unable to meaningfully change the region through the application of military force. And uh, but, I, but I think there's going to be this incredibly powerful temptation to do so, simply to, you know, to try, just to signal that this change has happened. But I, I really fundamentally think that the region has changed in such profound ways that you can't go back to the good old days as they see it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, isn't that sort of where the, the like the logic of escalation sort of takes hold, right? Where you, 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 as you said, you do this kind of show of force and you realize it's not achieving your ends. And so the temptation is to escalate, right? To, to see if you can do it'll, more. You know, if you want a, a Clinton-esque example of it, you can go back to, you know, kind of uh, Bosnia in the 90s, a case that you know something about, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, yet you, you declare uh, safe areas, but you don't protect them. You declare, you know, then you find yourself doing airstrikes and and then you find yourselves with peacekeepers and you just keep like escalating, escalating, escalating because you can never um, you, you can never admit that you failed. And once you're in, you can't get out. And this is what Obama has been so afraid of and been trying to avoid this, this slippery slope, which has become a cliche. But it's a very real thing that the more you get involved, the harder it is to extract. But it's also not giving you the ability to uh, to influence events. And I really think that one of the things that people have, Washington-based pundits especially, have just fundamentally misread is this notion that if the U.S. had just done more, then Syria would look fundamentally different. And I think it's just wrong because what they don't take into account is the counter moves by the other side. So if the U.S. had gotten involved more directly earlier, that probably would have just brought Russia in more directly earlier. Um, if we had armed the rebels at, you know, given them the surface air missiles or the, you know, the other things that they asked for, they probably just would have seen more support going to Assad. In other words, we would have climbed up the escalation ladder faster. 
but it wouldn't have resolved any of the underlying issues of this deeply divided and fragmented insurgency, the very real residual strength of the Assad regime, and just the you know the underlying strategic dynamics of the war. But I but I, I, I acknowledge though that I'm swimming against the current of opinion in Washington, and so I, I expect uh-huh. the next administration is going to test out the uh, this proposition, and then after they fail, then I think we'll come back to something where we are now. Uh, Mark, I would love to learn a little bit more about you now, pivot a little bit. We got to know each other, I suppose, a little bit while traveling through Iowa a few years ago on a little lecture circuit. Um, And I take it you are from Wisconsin. I know this because you are a Green Bay Packer fan. Yeah, I'm I'm from Wisconsin and uh, a Green Bay Packer fan and a Milwaukee Brewers fan. Um, And I'm I'm a big partisan of of Wisconsin. So where'd you grow up? Uh, Milwaukee. Milwaukee? Uh, I'm a Milwaukee boy. What did your parents do? How did you get into this? Uh, nothing, nothing like this. I, they, you know, my dad worked for the post office. Uh, you know, it was uh, not an academic background at all. And I actually had no prior connection to the Middle East at all um, until you know, I went to Duke as an undergraduate. And um, uh, I was, uh, did an internship in Washington, D.C. at something called the National Security Archive. I think you probably know it. Yeah, yeah. They, and, they sort of uh, – run help FOIA requests. Right? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. They, they, get, they get declassified government documents and it was a real learning experience, but they randomly assigned people to projects. And, um, I got involved in a project on the, uh, the arming or U S support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, about which I knew almost nothing. And then at that time they were also putting together what became the Iran, the Iran Contra briefing book. And so all of the interns worked on that. And so, I just became fascinated with what I was learning, these little snippets that I was learning about U.S. and the Middle East. So I went back to Duke and I, you know, I started taking every class mm-hmm. I could on the Middle East and Islam and uh, started studying Arabic and you know, all the usual things I think of you know, kind of political science people who get interested in the Middle East. Uh, forgive me because I, I don't know the history of this, but did, did the Iran-Contra uh, affair start with declassified articles through No, the Iran-Contra NSA? affair started with um, – a, uh, a leak to a Lebanese newspaper. Okay, okay. And, and so, then, uh, yeah. as, then the reports started pouring out in the Arab press. They eventually, you know, kind of filtered back into the American press. And then, uh, then people like uh, the National Security Archive started digging in uh, to that. So I was, I was a very, very, you know, I was just a little intern back then, right? I wasn't exactly central to, to any of that. But, but, uh, but so, I'm like, sure, but do you sure remember learned. any documents that you saw in particular that were kind of shocking? I, I don't even remember. Ah, okay, okay, fair enough. So you went back to Duke, interested, suddenly interested in in the Middle East because of this experience as an intern. Yep, and then uh, and then went up to Cornell, and I was lucky that when I went to Cornell for my PhD, uh, Shibli Telhami, uh, who's now at the University of Maryland. He had just started as an, as an assistant professor at, uh, at Cornell and didn't have any students. And I was looking for an advisor, and he was great. He, uh, he helped me. Um, I don't know who uh, that is. Oh, Shibli Telhami. He's uh, at the University of Maryland. He runs uh, a lot of really great polling work um, in the Middle East now. Um, a really great guy. But he helped me uh, get funding to go off to Egypt for the first time, to go to Jordan for the first time, became one of my dissertation advisors. And, um, yeah, and that was it. So your first trip to the Middle East was in Egypt. What year? Yeah. 91, I think. What was that like? I'm I'm, I'm getting old. Uh, we all are. (laughs) Um, but what was that uh, like? So, so, so you had been studying the region for, for a long time, uh, back in Cornell and and at Duke and you finally end up in Egypt. What was that experience like, you know, stepping up the plane? 
uh, it was great. I made a lot of friends there who are, you know, are, you know, big, you know, they're, they're part of this whole, uh, uh Middle East academic community now. And some of them became, became, uh, went to work for the government. Some, uh, became academics, some became journalists, um, that whole Cairo crowd. I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like if you look now at, uh, what's happened in Egypt since the coup, uh, you see it's become a very inhospitable place for, uh, for foreign researchers. You know, the, uh, you remember a few months ago, this Italian PhD student was murdered, um, quite brutally. Um, you know, a lot of people have experienced problems, uh, harassment, um, by, by, you know, by government or government affiliated people. Some people have been turned away at the airport. And it's become a much more difficult place to do academic research. And it's a pity because I think that's one of the things that many uh, people in the academic community, the Middle East studies community had in common was that almost everybody had lived in Egypt, had studied there. Um, and they were, you know, either at some degree, whether shallow or deep, they had some kind of personal connection to Egypt. Um, and, you know, I really wonder what it's going to be like, uh, you know, 10 years down the road when you end up with a whole community of academics and journalists and the like who don't have that. So wh- where are the young academics now going to, to study? It's, it's, it's really hard. You've got a lot of them studying in Tunisia. It's a, you know, it's a great place open now and uh, just all kinds of fascinating things happen. So there's quite a few people doing research in Tunisia. Uh, Jordan is still a popular place. Um, more and more people had been going to the Gulf because, frankly, the Gulf has become quite interesting in ways that it wasn't before to political scientists. And um, it's relatively stable and secure compared to other places. But there, there's, you know, there's other trade-offs there uh, about, um, you know, kind of the efforts by uh, those governments to control access and keep critics out. And, you know, so there's, there's a loss at that common ground. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine going back. I, I, want, I imagine – I can only imagine what it was like, you know, 30 or 40 years ago when everybody had, were spending time in Baghdad and uh, Damascus and uh, – and, and Cairo and all of this, but you know the the areas where people can go and do research now is really shrinking, and I think it has a it has an effect. I think it will have an effect. So, what was your uh, research interest back in in the early nineteen nineties? Um, you know, I've always been interested in in the media, and I've always been interested in kind of information and how information circulates and how uh, you know how people argue and think. Uh, about politics. Have you ever thought about why you were interested in that? Is there any sort of pivotal moment? Where yeah, it's just, I don't know. Why, why are people interested in anything? Um, I, I just, I just found it interesting. I always, I, I like journalists and uh, I like uh, kind of public thought. And so philosophically, um, you know, I was, I, I studied uh, uh, Habermas, a uh, German philosopher uh, in graduate school and became quite uh, focused on his, his theory and concept of the public sphere and um, and so and that was very that, that had a big influence on me, um, and so most of the work I've done, going all the way back to the early '90s, right up to today, has been about assessing and trying to understand the ways that um, you know the the media and the structure of political information affects politics. So back my first my dissertation in my first book, I spent a lot of time looking at uh, the Jordanian uh, printed media, the press. Where you had this uh, this sudden eruption of like a tabloid political uh, like weeklies you know these weekly newspapers in the early '90s who were suddenly like publishing all these opinion columns and news that had never in the past been possible 
And that was going along with this, these really interesting changes in Jordanian uh, national identity. You had uh, a series of relatively free and fair elections uh, back in the early 90s, which were kind of reshaping the country's politics. And so back then it was the printed press. And then my next book, uh, focused on the on satellite television, and and because that at, after the launch of Al Jazeera, that's what was really transforming and shaping and driving political identity and political debate. And so then, how, how, in what ways? I mean, could you point to any specific examples that illustrate your book article or or your book or your article that describes? Oh, the so, ways in which so that Al-Jazeera... was that book came out. Yeah. Yeah, that was like the 2006 book. It was called Voices of the New Arab Public. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that looked at the way that uh, that Al Jazeera especially, but really the whole satellite television uh, at the time, because uh, Al Jazeera spawned a whole bunch of competitors, mm-hmm. uh, all with these free-to-view news and political programming uh, channels. And, um, and, and so I looked at the way that this was creating and shaping this new type of Arab the pan-Arab identity and uh, mobilizing people around a set of core shared interests, this core shared narrative about uh, about Arab politics and Arab identity. Uh, that Al Jazeera wasn't just it wasn't just like telling people what to do. It was hosting all of these political talk shows. So they would choose a topic. You know, they would you know Iraq or terrorism or corruption. And then they would bring in people to argue about it. And so they would set the in, – in academic terms, they were agenda setting without necessarily advocating for one position or the other. Has Al Jazeera lost that juice uh, a bit? Yeah, Al Jazeera Because it's sort of seen as like the outgrowth of yeah. Qatari foreign policy now and it's kind of wrapped up in these regional politics. Yeah, and I, I, I've written that uh, in, in the last book and uh, a couple of other places – that what made Al Jazeera special back in the 2000s was that it was it was genuinely able to present itself as this common ground where all the ideological trends came together and argued and spoke openly. And you know, a lot of people hated it, and a lot of people still hate it. But back then, it, it was it was not first among equals. It was a very unique thing, and that uniqueness has largely been lost. Um, you know, it still has its moments. But it's become a much more subservient to Qatari foreign policy. Um, it's become much more sectarian, and um, it's been much more, um, you know, identified with one side in these uh, these big regional wars. And, and it's actually it's quite a loss, actually, because to me, one of the most disturbing and most important trends in regional politics has been this deep and profound polarization uh, the, along Sunni Shiite lines, along um, you know Islamists and anti-Islamists uh, within countries. You have you know ethnic and, and tribal and sectarian polarization, and uh, one of the one of the real uh, contributions of Al Jazeera was that it provided one of those few big public spaces where all of those trends could come together. They wouldn't agree on anything, but at least they'd be talking to each other. And today, in the, in a in a political information environment, which is much more driven by um, by social media and by what I would call narrow casting, where there's lots of satellite TV stations, but basically each one is only watched by their own by their own people. You know, it's like uh, it's like in the U.S. Like right? the Fox like News effect, like only yeah, conservatives, conservatives watch Fox, Fox yeah, liberals and, watch MSNBC. Yeah, yeah, that that sort of thing. So that's that's basically what happens now. And it used to be that everybody had their own thing, 
but mm-hmm. they all also watched Al Jazeera. I, I know, and you that's also, I know you also uh, have written about uh, social media. Do you see that sort of narrow casting happening on social media as oh, well? Absolutely. I mean, we see that here. I mean, in our own kind of feeds, where you know, you're only your your kind of people are the only people talking to you. These echo chamber effects, I think, are really built into the way social media works. And so, you know, and that and that, and that was a big theme of my last book and this whole series of reports that I've done for the U.S. Institute for Peace and uh, their their Peace Tech Lab. Uh, this it's called the Blogs and Bullets series. And uh, my my colleagues uh, uh, Sean Aday and uh, Dean Freelon and I have done a whole series of empirical and conceptual studies of this in different contexts, you know, Iran, Egypt, um, uh, Syria, and we did one on kind of the, the, the broad Arab Spring. And um, a lot of other academics have done these studies, you know, all kinds of contexts. And you see the same patterns repeating again and again and again with social media when people basically self-select into what they're going to hear. You get these just really almost unstoppable trends towards self, to, towards the cr- construction of echo chambers. Well, what kind of political effect has that had in certain countries in in the Middle East? Like, can you walk me through like the sure. effect uh, of that? Like Egypt is a good example. Uh, you know, in Egypt, you know, during the revolution, you had this real sense of. I mean, you remember the slogan, right? The people want to overthrow the regime. A united people, you know, of all classes and ethnicities and religions and Islamists and anti-Islamists, you know, that's that's the Tahrir model. And that wasn't sustained for very long, right? And you begin to see these groups then breaking apart and pursuing their their independent uh, their independent interests. And in this uh, in a in a piece we have coming out pretty soon, we're able to show with with Twitter data, we can actually show how this unfolds where you originally you have lots of people who are interacting with each other frequently the islamists and the and the non-islamists you know they they they're clearly marked you know they're clearly separate groups but they're talking to each other and as time goes on the the connections between these clusters grow weaker and weaker and weaker and the sentiments expressed to each other become more and more and more hostile and you know so if you get by the time you get to like uh the December of 2012 November December 2012 after Morsi's been elected um it is almost like the islamists and the anti-islamists live in completely different worlds and so you know when I gave a presentation on this once and I was able to show the exact same uh, uh, kind of news footage being shown, one on a kind of an anti-Islamist TV station and the other on an Islamist-leaning uh, online uh, uh, platform. And they might as well have been showing, you know, Mars and Jupiter. Huh. They were so different in terms of what, you know, what they were highlighting. If you, if you watch the one you would learn that uh, a bunch of you know stampeding uh, radical jihadist terrorists were attacking peaceful and civic protesters for no reason whatsoever, and you watch the other one and you see a horde of these like secular extremists attacking the presidential palace and attacking um, you know the Muslim Brotherhood offices for no reason whatsoever, and the common ground totally disappears. Um, so, in addition to being uh, an observer of trends in social media, you are also a, a participant. Um, what inspired you way back when, as an academic, to decide to get into blogging and, and blogging so prolifically as as you did for so many years, and and, and now you're obviously very prolific on Twitter. But what was your like the initial inspiration for that? You know, I mean, back then, I mean, this was back in like the this was the dark ages, right? And mm-hmm. um, you know, at the time, 
it just seemed like a like a fun and interesting thing to do. I mean, this was after nine eleven, and you were seeing people like Andrew Sullivan and uh, you know Glenn Reynolds and you know people like that, and it just seemed like a like a way to get your voice out there into the public sphere. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, I started doing it relatively early. Um, like 2002, I sort of got going, but really got going in, in uh, 2003. Um, Blogspot was free, and I just started doing it. And then I just started seeing it actually having um, feedback effects. I mean, once you were out there, all of a sudden I was getting feedback and emails and comments from you know from other people interested in the subject, um, from participants in the events. I you know I was able to make contact with a fair number of policymakers uh, working on various issues because they were, they were reading the blogosphere. They were, they were looking for ideas. Was there ever like a moment where you realized that like a blog post you wrote in an idea you first floated somewhere on social media was being implemented or became sort of mainstream within policy circles? I don't know about being implemented, but there was definitely a sense that you were being listened to. Um, and you were able to do so in a way that really circumvented all the traditional gatekeepers. Um, you, you know, so you didn't have to, you know, convince uh, an op-ed page editor to publish you. I mean, people, people now they just assume that you can publish anything you want to, right? And because you can. I mean, there's so many platforms desperate for content that you have to really try to not be able to publish. Um, but back then, you know, there were you know a handful of op-ed pages. And basically six or seven people could basically decide what things were going to be, you know, heard and what things weren't. I, I and, guess just despite and then, and yeah, then sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And then in academia, you know, you write a journal article and it goes through peer review and two to three years to publication and then it's hiding behind a paywall and nobody can see it. So back then it was just very frustrating. And so blogging gave you this real-time ability to get your ideas out there and to get almost instant feedback. So if I would write a blog post and I would say, here's what the Iraqi media is talking about and it totally contradicts what the, uh, you know, what the, uh, the White House is saying and here's what I think that means, um, you know, I would be getting emails from, you know, pe- from people in Baghdad. I'd be getting emails from, you know, people involved in the policy of it, emails from, you know, U.S. soldiers based there. And they would, sometimes they'd be telling me things. Sometimes they'd be asking me questions about it. Um, you know, a couple times, like I, you know, I, one time I blogged about a, um, uh, this, uh, jihadist, uh, kind of counter counterinsurgency manual that I picked up on one of the forums and I wrote a short piece about it. And I think that's probably the single thing I've gotten the most requests for over the years. It's a pity that I've long since lost it. Um, so I, because I guess the forum d- went down. Despite um, the like people like you and, and and others and the advent of of websites like the Monkey Cage, it still seems that there is this huge divide between like academic research on foreign policy issues and the access of policymakers to that academic research. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I actually don't think that's true anymore. I mean, that, I mean, it's it, obviously it's not perfect, but um, I actually think that academics, uh, the, the critique that academics are kind of, um, you know, sitting in their ivory towers and not uh, not involved in policy debates, I think that's a, that's a that's an antiquity now. I mean, I, I look around. I mean, the monkey cage alone. You know, we've published you know thousands of academics on every topic. Uh, we have a huge readership, and um, you know, I, I think it's not just that 
the practice has changed. I feel like the ethos has changed. It's become normal now. It used to be the sort of thing that people like me were, you know, we're kind of we're like this kind of cute, strange oddity. Isn't that nice that they do those things? And then, it, and then after that, it mm-hmm. was, wow, that looks like a good thing to do. Could we do it too? That's and good. now That's good it's now. become pretty much the expectation. Mm-hmm. That's it's like, why know. wouldn't yeah. you want to publicize your research? Why wouldn't you want to do that? I use this podcast to a certain extent to, to help to kind of bridge that gap. Um, you know, and, and uh, that's good to know, though, that that the trend is moving in the right direction. Um, I, mean, I wrote a piece. Yeah. I wrote a piece, ironically enough, on the monkey cage. Um, it was called I, I think I don't remember what title we gave it um, uh, for the monkey cage. But it was based on an academic journal article that I wrote on the same topic called Political Science in Real Time for Perspectives on Politics. And, and this is actually a perfect example. It's like modeling the actual argument. So I had the, the 10,000 word uh, academic journal article in one of the top journals in the field, which was, you know, that, that's there. And then I had the, you know, the 1500 word version of it in the, uh, you know, in, in the Washington Post in the monkey cage, which was much more widely read, but distilled the argument, stripped away a lot of the, you know, the footnotes and, you know, the, all that stuff, but, you know, was able to, I think quite clearly convey the real arguments and then it ends up getting discussed on a podcast like this, right? So you see it going like down the up the level of publicity in ways that the core ideas then get out to all of these different communities. And that I think was something which was profoundly missing before. But uh, now it's just a normal part of our field. We just have a few minutes left, but I, I have to ask you uh, about uh, hip hop. Because in addition to your writings on the Middle East, one of your most famous articles ever was applying international relations theory to uh, trends and, and, and rivalries in, in hip-hop. Where does your interest in, in rap and that style of music come from growing up in, in Milwaukee? I, I, I wish I had an interesting answer to that, but I don't. I'm just like, I just like the music, and I, and I follow it. And I actually think that um, it actually does have a lot of lessons for uh, for political science and 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 for you know, world politics, and I think part of that is that so much of like of the good hip hop stuff is about the internal politics of the field. I mean, all of the the, the rap battles and the dissing tracks. And, um, you know, the posturing and there's always people competing, you know, the, everyone wants to be King of New York. Everybody wants the throne. And it also is a fairly anarchic environment where it's not obvious what constitutes power. I mean, you could have somebody who, you know, sells, you know, tens of millions of albums, but people don't really respect, you know, say Drake, for example, um, whereas you can have someone who doesn't sell a lot of albums, but is widely, widely considered to be the king because of something. Maybe it's the quality of his lyrics. Maybe it's the authenticity of his lifestyle. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that it might be, but you know, it actually does have a lot of analogs to the way states and movements compete and try and survive in world politics. And so, but, but the nice thing about that though, is that the rappers, um, they're both, they're, they're the players, right? They're the states. They're the they're the the politicians, but they're also commenting on themselves in real time. So when Jay Z is releasing a diss track and he's saying all these reasons why he's the king and Nas isn't the king of New York, 
okay, he's explaining it to you in terms that a political scientist finds very familiar. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I just found it absolutely fascinating. Yeah, you I think some... I saw Nas and Jay-Z the same year in D.C. Nas was playing at the 1100-person <laughs> 930 Club. Jay-Z was at the Verizon Center. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, so they're selling out different, you know, different levels of, of clubs. But then if you ask, like, the hip-hop community who's better, you know, that the selling out clubs is only part of it. So, I mean, would like neoliberal theories of international relations explain like the rise and, and the dominance of, of Jay-Z? Well, so that was one of the articles that I wrote was that, you know, Jay-Z alone, you know, he had his trajectory. But then as he was on his decline, uh, he, he forms this alliance with Kanye West and the two of them dominate for a while. But, you know, what was interesting about that was that even then, I and mean, this was a piece I did, uh, you know, the, like the second big piece I did in, the, in my hip hop series, um, was that even then it was the, the throne that they were occupying was clearly a much less secure thing because you had at that time, you know, the rise of the, of the Southern hip hop was, it seemed to be unstoppable at the time. Um, and you've got, you know, the same time you've got like Drake and the rise of this more R and B influence type, um, you know, these, you know, softer kinds of rappers. And, um, the, the same sense of the fragmentation of the field that I think, uh, also characterizes our politics today. Um, have you ever thought of, of like writing, like an entry level IR sort of book using these I, examples because I, I mean you know I would love to write I would love to write that book all I need is uh, someone to give me a contract for it and for me to find the time to write it I know that because you know I, I've interviewed a lot of these um, you know the, the the theorists that you cite uh, but I just have to imagine that's like such an accessible way to explain international relations theory I mean it's a great idea <laughs> I'm sure you've thought of it. Dan Dresner with his, uh, you know, Dan zombies. Yeah, he's been on the show. He talked about his like IR and zombies. IR and hip hop. I'm not like a zombie guy though. I can never get into the zombie genre. Yeah, well, well, that was a great book that Dan did though, because he did exactly what you're talking about, where Mm -hmm. he used this uh, popular thing as an entryway to explain all these theories. And he's he's been he's been uh, pushing me to uh, to do this, and maybe I will someday. There, there, come out to do. Okay, uh, before I let you go, anything else you'd like to plug? Uh, Anything else we should look out for coming down the pike from you? Well, you know, I mean, this book is just out, uh, The New Arab Wars, and, um, you know, it's only just um, starting to get uh, starting to get feedback and discussion. And I'm really uh, looking forward to seeing that discussion continue, because I think that, uh, you know, one of the big arguments that that book makes is that as horrible and dismal as things look right now, we're nowhere near the end of what the Arab uprisings were about. And that we're looking at this you know, very long-term process of the fragmentation of state power in the region. And right now, there's this very strong temptation across the region, and especially here in Washington, to want to believe that it's all over, that this was just an unpleasant period, but now the states are back in control, we can partner with them and kind of put the pieces back together. And I really deeply believe that's just an, it's an it's an illusion. All of these states are weaker than they were five years ago. They're less legitimate. They're less stable. They're more internally violent, and they're surrounded by more chaos. And so I, th- I think that this sense that you hear out there that you, it's the palpable feeling that the uprisings are over and we're back to business as usual. I think that that's people who are banking on that, uh, and I think it's quite a few people are going to be in for a pretty nasty shock. All right. Well, Mark, thank you so much for speaking with me. I love learning from you as always. Hey, Mark. It was great. really great to talk to you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mark 
you know, I mentioned before, but I, I really do love learning from Mark. I've followed his work for a, a long time, and he's someone who I've kind of relied on over the years for really coherent, cogent analysis of politics in the Middle East. And it's all accessible. He writes very accessibly. I love the fact that he's writing for the Washington Post as well as writing traditional academic papers. So it's all great stuff. Anyway, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.